Okay, turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 9. I'm going to pick up where I left off last week. We were talking about bursting wineskins. I'm not going to go into that full explanation uh, as we did last week, but I would encourage you to, in order to contextualize what I'm talking about this week, you probably need to listen to last week's message. You can download that from our website, ihop-atlanta.com. It's a free download. Um, So we're talking about this issue of wineskins, and we found out last week, and just giving a quick definition of it, wineskins, in the way that Jesus uses it in Matthew 9, has much to do with our paradigm of how we steward what God does in the earth. Our, our heart stance, our mentality of the way that, that we deal with God's movement in the earth. Jesus is the one that releases new waves, new moves of his spirit continually. New wine is what he uses as the example in Matthew 9. And he said, if you're a new wineskin, if you'll, you'll, you'll allow your heart to be um, new in, in, ex, in experiencing and receiving what God does, you'll be able to receive the new wine. But if you stay in old paradigms, old mentalities, you'll be an old wineskin that will actually burst when new wine is poured out. And so what we're endeavoring to do is say, okay, Lord, we want our hearts to be open and to be ready to receive what it is you're doing in the earth. We want to understand who you are, what you're doing, and we want to get in on what you're doing. <laughs> I mean, that's, it's, it's one thing to say, okay, God's doing something new, but man, I want to be in on it. You know, I don't want to just be the guy that goes, yeah, new things are happening. That's nice. I want to be in on the new, what the Lord's doing. Where, wherever the Lord's moving, I want to be with him. And that's really part of what he talks about with the new, the new wineskin. And so in Matthew 9, he actually lays out a template of um, understanding. He doesn't give you a list, but he gives you um, culture. He gives you a few concepts that go into being a new wineskin. In fact, the whole chapter is a, 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 an explanation of what it means to be a new wineskin. And throughout the chapter of Matthew 9, you see Jesus doing things that the religious leaders at the time, they didn't agree with. I mean, Jesus would know if it's something right in the kingdom of God or not, because he is God. So here he is, God in the flesh, doing what God in the flesh does, advancing his kingdom, showing mercy, healing bodies, forgiving um, sin. And the religious leaders at the time, having an old mentality, an old wineskin, uh, according to traditions of men and not according to the word of God, they are rejecting God in the flesh. You have hungry people that are right there, and they're saying, man, this is amazing. We've never seen stuff like this. God's doing stuff we've never seen before. Yeah. And then you have the religious guys on the other side, and they're saying, this isn't God. This is the devil. And in verse 34 of Matthew 9, the religious leaders of the time, they illustrate that they are burst wineskins when they attribute to God satanic power. I mean, you you just can't get worse than that. Here's God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, and they say he's doing that by satanic power. I mean, I just, you just can't say anything worse. And so they illustrate that their wineskins are bursting. There's a group that's receiving. Yes, Lord, we love it. We've never seen it like this before. And then there's a group that's accusing and rejecting. Now, what's interesting is this. We tend to give the Pharisees a bad rap, the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, because we see Jesus continually dealing with them throughout the scripture and addressing them. But then you also see Jesus he addresses full towns. I mean, he says to, to Capernaum, where's, where his main base was for a little bit over two years, he was there in Capernaum, which is Peter's hometown. He says, if the, if the signs and wonders had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah that were done in you, Capernaum, he goes, Sodom and Gomorrah would have repented. Now think about that. He wasn't just rebuking the religious guys at that point, he was rebuking everybody. The dull-hearted you know, uh, just sinner people, the dull-hearted Jews, just not going, wow, God's moving, let's get on with it. Just, you know, give me more, give me more, give me more, feed me. Here, feed me again. He goes, look, you're not coming out here because 
you know, you're wanting to get on with God. You're just wanting to get free meals. When he was feeding the 4,000 and 5,000, they said, continue to do more. You know, I'm talking about in John, I'm referencing John 6. So we give the Pharisees a little bit of a bad rap because we, we assume that everybody else received Jesus except for the Pharisees. It's really not like that. The, fair, the, the crowd was so fickle that by the end, the Pharisees were able to incite the crowd to cry out, crucify. <laughs> wow. So here's what we see. And I think Matthew... He gives us a unique look because obviously Matthew was Jewish. He was a Jewish tax collector, which tax collectors weren't very highly thought of in that day. To be a tax collector, you basically had to sell out on uh, the Jews. You had to become an employee of the Roman government. And if you did that, you were just a, a straight up traitor, basically. And... Um, And generally, they were dishonest guys. They weren't just collecting taxes for the Roman government. They were actually collecting a little bit more than they were supposed to and lining their own pockets. So not only were they, you know, thieves, essentially, they were total traitors and had betrayed Judaism. Matthew ends up being on Jesus' leadership team. I tell you, Jesus selects a leadership team like you and I would never select, but he does. And so through Matthew's eyes, we get a unique glimpse of Jesus dealing with the religious leaders of the time. And here's what you have. In Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus does his first major proclamation, the Sermon on the Mount, first major public sermon. He references the, the, the Pharisees in there, and he just simply calls them hypocrites. And by chapter 9, he's having to deal directly with the Pharisees who are saying, why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? Why are you doing this? And then he has to give us the conversation of the new wineskin. He goes, it's not the way you thought it was. There's new wine being poured out. you got to be a new wineskin. Well, by Matthew 12, his, his conversations with the Pharisees have escalated so much. Now he's talking about when you're ascribing satanic power to the works that I'm doing by the Holy Spirit, you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit, and it's unpardonable. Now think about this. Chapter 9, it's new wine, new wineskins. Chapter 12, it's the unpardonable sin. And that's when he begins to rebuke the cities that didn't receive him. By chapter 15... The, the Pharisees come down to Capernaum from Jerusalem. So they make this you know, many-mile trip from Jerusalem over to, to Capernaum to deal with Jesus, to accuse Jesus. Jesus um, says a few things to them, and, and then his disciples goes, they come over, they go, hey, did you know that what you just said offended those guys? Like it was one thing when you were nailing the Pharisees and the elders that are here in Capernaum, but you just hit the big guys from Jerusalem. Do you get it? Like they can, you know, they can get people arrested and put to death and all that. Jesus' answer was, they're blind guides leading the blind. And then he says this, every tree that my father did not plant, he actually says the Pharisees were a tree that his father did not plant. He goes, they will be cut down. I mean, this is intense. I mean, if you're the disciples, you're like, oh man, we're in serious trouble. I mean, it was, this was fun, but now we're really in trouble because those guys have the authority to arrest people and put them to death. He goes, yeah, they're blind guides leading the blind. They're trees that are going to get cut down. That's Jesus' answer. Matthew 16, we see more encounters. Pharisees, by Matthew 21, Jesus is on the last week of his life. He shows up, he cleanses the temple. If the disciples thought they had a problem before, now you got Jesus once again turning over tables, blowing things up in the temple. And he gives, he finishes Matthew 21 with the parable of the wicked vine dressers. And that parable, just a short version is, there was a vineyard that the landowner owned. He gave it to some vine dressers. The vine dressers, they ended up beating up the guys that were, that were working for the landowner. And they ended up taking the, vine, uh, the vineyard for themselves. And then the landowner sends all these guys to come down. And finally, they send, he sends his son. says, hey, the landowner wants the vineyard back. And they put the son to death. This is, the, this is the parable he gives him last week of his life. He goes, yes, yeah, surely those wicked vine dressers will be destroyed. 
He's not mincing any words right now. And then 21 leads us to 22. He says the kingdom of heaven is like a a marriage. It's a good father uh, arranging a marriage for his son. And then that leads us to 23, which is the most incredible, piercing. I mean, if you read 23 slowly, you go, what in the world? Jesus eight times says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You're all hypocrites. Boom. I mean, he is, to say it modern vernacular, he is dropping bombs on them. Eight times he proclaims eight woes to them. He says, you're whitewashed tombs. You make all your, your disciples twice a, a son of hell as yourself. You're, you're, you're robbing widows. You're extorting money. You're just false. And Matthew 23 ends with Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. He says, how much have I longed to gather you like a hen gathers her chicks? I wanted to gather you to myself and have a loving relationship with you, but you would not. Therefore, your place has left you desolate. When you read the progression of Jesus dealing with the the religious leaders throughout Matthew, it is a stunning read. I mean, it's it's chilling. Doing massive signs and wonders and dealing with this religious spirit from these religious elders. And his final commentary is in, in Matthew 23 when he says, it's over. Jerusalem will be destroyed. So I want to go back to Matthew 9 because... What, what Jesus starts with when he says these guys are hypocritical, they need to be a new wineskin, he has to end at the end of his ministry with destruction is coming because they would not come to me and wouldn't repent. Well, Matthew 9, I think you get one of the most pivotal and important uh, reasons that Jesus has to, has to proclaim judgment on the religious system and on Jerusalem. In Matthew 9, we get the hint as to what is going on and why. And it's the verse we identified and we kind of stayed on last week. But I want to go into it in more detail this week. Matthew 9, verse 11. Here's what's going on. Matthew 9, verse 11. I'm in Mark. Let's me turn over to Matthew 9. Praise God. Matthew 9, verse 11. Jesus is eating with tax collectors in Matthew's house. He's, he's selected the most unlikely guy to be on his leadership team. I mean, really, they're all unlikely guys. I mean, Peter is a fisherman, brash. I mean, they're just down the list. You're just like... Who did you pick? I mean, it's just <laughs> not the team you and I would pick. So he's at Matthew's house, and the Pharisees, when they saw it, verse 11, said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. He's speaking a little tongue-in-cheek here. He's going, you guys think you're well then you don't need me. You don't need God. It's the ones who know that they've got issues. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. They need a physician. The sick, the ones that will will identify and will be honest and say, man, I've got issues. I need God. You know, I used to say that's like the first requisite of Christianity is just getting honest. Just getting honest. Quit acting like you got it all together and get for real, man. I mean, everybody has got significant need of God. You know, humanity will try to, will try to paint its own goodness, its own ability through status, through, through finance, through position. You know, one guy looks successful because he has money. But, I mean, just part the curtains and go behind and look at the lifestyle of the successful sinner guy, quote-unquote successful with money sinner guy, and find the ridiculous debauchery in their lifestyle. I mean, you know, just total messed up lives. 
And it's amazing to me even how the church will still clamor for worldly success. And so the human, the, the, the human way is to, to proclaim his own goodness. Every man will pl- proclaim his own goodness. And we all try to act like we're fine, we're good, I'm okay, you're okay. But the truth of the matter is, man, we all need God bad. There's none righteous, no, not one. We've all gone our own way. All us like sheep have gone astray. We need God. We've all got issues. All of us. And that kernel of truth has to be at the core of of a human heart for it to ever even consider God. So Jesus goes, hey, listen, the well, those that that demand that they're okay and they don't need God, they don't need a physician. It's the sick that need a doctor. If you'll confess that you're sick, I'm here for you. But if you say that you're fine, no problem. Be fine without me. So then he goes on. But go and learn what this means. And what a, just a slap. I mean, these are the most learned men of the day. They are the religious leaders of the hour. Go and learn something, guy who's supposed to know everything. I mean, doctors of the law. Go learn something. I mean, what? I mean, can you imagine the 60-year-old scribe getting this from the 30-year-old upstart miracle worker who you think's a heretic? Hey, go learn something, bro. I mean, that would just, and they're, and they're full of the religious spirit, that would just cause them to seethe with anger. Go learn this. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And we touched on this last week. It was one of the main thoughts. He desires mercy. He desires to be merciful. He desires us to be merciful. But I, I went back and really looked I like the admonition from Jesus in Matthew 9 this week. And I said, okay, I am going to go learn this. I'm going to go and learn what you're even talking about here because this is from Hosea chapter 6. So let me go back to Hosea 6 and let me find out. I want to learn it. I want to learn it. And last week, I'll just be honest, the way I taught it was primarily from a second commandment standpoint. In other words, love your neighbor. Be merciful to your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. And I think that has an implication to the second commandment. But I want to say this. I think it's primarily a first commandment idea. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. It's primarily a first commandment idea. And what I mean by that is it's primarily a love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength kind of idea. It's not primarily a go and do mercy acts idea, though I do believe there's implication for that in there. I think it's primarily a fall in love with God idea. And I'm going to illustrate that. Now turn with me to Hosea chapter 5. Hosea, it's right after Daniel. We're going to read through chapter 6, but I realize, and I'm going to give you chapter 6 on your screen, but can't get chapter 6 unless you get the end of chapter 5, because, I mean, let's be honest, Hosea didn't write his prophecies with chapters and verses. That's what the interpreters added, just to make it easy for us, so we could reference where to go. The end of Hosea 5, oh man, the Lord says this chilling idea. Verse 14, I mean, I just, <laughs> when you read this, you should, I mean, you should get the Mufasa effect for sure. Mufasa effect, that's from Lion King. Right, and you, oh, you tremble. Okay, Sorry. Let's stay biblical. You should get the Isaiah 66 tremble at his word effect. Same idea. He is the line of the tribe of Judah. So, I mean, you could call it the Mufasa effect if you're trembling at his word. All right. (sighs) Look at this. Verse 14. I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. That is stunning. Northern and southern kingdoms, he's implicating everybody. He goes, I'm going to be like a lion. What are you going to do? I, even I, will tear them and go away. Hosea fearsomely and fearlessly pronounces the judgments of the Lord. He's primarily prophesying to the northern kingdom. 
primarily prophesying to the kingdom that's gone away. They've been worshiping, really, they've been worshiping false idols, they've been worshiping demons, sacrificing to demons at two false high places. They hadn't been going to Jerusalem. They've been going to two false high places and worshiping demons. And he goes, I'm going to be like a lion. I, even I, will tear you to pieces. And then I'll go away. I will take them away and no one shall rescue. He's talking about how he's going to use Assyria to be like a rod of judgment in his hand to bring judgment upon the northern kingdom because of their idol worship, their demon worship. A few verses earlier, he says, you've trusted Assyria. He goes, I am going to use them. He goes, and I will tear you. I will tear you. And no one's going to be able to rescue you. Look at verse 15. This is, I mean, this has got so many deep implications. I can't even touch them. He goes, I will return again to my place till they acknowledge their offense. Then they will seek my face in their affliction. They will earnestly seek me. He goes, it's going to be required of you, Israel. It's going to be required of you that you acknowledge your offense, that you acknowledge your sin, that you acknowledge that the reason why judgment has come is because of your sin. He goes, I will be a lion. I will tear you and then I will wait until you return. Oh, we don't understand the ferocity of the love of God. We don't understand that he is such a a violent lover. He will pursue you even unto tearing you. He will pursue you even under breaking your hand off of the object of sin. He goes, I will pursue you. I am so jealous for you. I'll pursue you like a lion would. I will tear you and you will then return to me. You'll acknowledge your offense. And then you'll serve me. I mean, oh my gosh. That's just. I mean, before that happens to me, I'm like, yes, Lord, I love you. Just whatever, tell me anything. Because I don't want, I want to run with the lion. I don't want the lion running at me. No, really. I, want to, I mean, I'm going to say this prophetically because it's burning in my soul. How, many in the body of Christ, they are under this sentence right here. They are under this sentence because they have turned from the Lord. They name the name of Jesus, and the Lord goes, I'm your problem. It's not the devil. It's me. You've got to return to me and acknowledge your offense, and then I'll heal you. So now we get wonderful verse, chapter 6, verse 1 in context. Hosea, trembling after releasing that prophecy, goes, Come, let us return to the Lord. Well, I guess so. He just prophesied that God's going to tear them like a lion. He goes, hey guys, let's, no, really, this is bad. Let's, let's go back to the Lord. For he has torn, but he will heal. He is stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up. Then we may live in his sight. That's a powerful end time and millennial prophecy I won't comment on. Verse three. Let us know. And I like how, uh, I believe it's the NIV says, come to know him. Let us come to know him. Let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like rain, like the latter and former rain to the earth. And he is right there. He's echoing Joel, or Joel is going to echo him later. This is, a, this is right in line with the Joel 2 prophecy. The latter rains being released on the earth and revival coming. So look what he says in verse 4. Because this is really what I want to hit. I've got to get to verse 6, so just here we go. O Ephraim, that's the northern kingdom. What shall I do to you? O Judah, what shall I do to you? Look at this. For your faithfulness is like a morning cloud, and like the early dew, it goes away. Ouch. Because my people, your faithfulness is as fleeting as the dew that's on the ground, as soon as heat comes, as soon as the sun hits it, it's gone. As soon as there's pressure, as soon as there's another attraction, your faithfulness is as fleeting as the dew or a morning mist, morning cloud. 
What a, I mean, what a, oh, no. Verse 5, he goes, I have therefore hewn them. I've cut them by the prophets. I've slain them by my words. And your judgments are like the light that goes forth. In verse 6, we get it now in context. Go and learn what this means. For I desire, the NKJV says, mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. The NAS version, New American Standard says, for I desire loyalty and not sacrifice. Here's what I want to draw your attention to. Verse 4. When he says, your faithfulness to me is like the morning dew, that word faithfulness is the same word that's translated mercy in verse 6. It's a Hebrew word, hesed. Hesed. In fact, hesed is one of the most important Hebrew words in the Old Testament as it relates to the knowledge of God. Hesed. So in in verse 4 he says, your hesed is like the morning dew. And in verse 6 he says, I desire hesed. Now this word has said, I mean, there's, it has an abundance. It's a rich Hebrew term. Vine says it this way. He goes, anytime you translate this word has said and you don't have the features of love, strength, and loyalty, you miss a part of what it means. Love, strength, and and loyalty. At times it's translated kindness. At times it's translated mercy. Most often in the Old Testament it's translated loving kindness. It's the tenderness of God and his kindness towards us. To, to understand has said, you've got to look at how it's used throughout the Old Testament. I'm just going to just touch a couple times it's used so you get the picture of what this is about. When the Lord shows up to Moses and he proclaims his name, he says, I'm abounding in loving kindness. He goes, I'm abounding in hesed. I'm abounding in loyal love, in tender affection, in faithful love. I'm abounding in faithful love to you. I'm abounding in hesed. When David and Jonathan when they make a covenant with each other and Jonathan says, listen, when I've gone my way and my father's gone my way and when you're king, he goes, show kindness to my family. The word is hesed. And so David, he, you know, after Saul and Jonathan have died, David hunts, he finds Mephibosheth. Why? Because he wants to show hesed. He wants to show kindness, loyalty and love because of his covenant with Jonathan. Hesed, faithful love, faithful kindness, loyalty and tenderness and affection. It's this rich word of strength and commitment and sweetness and love and affection and, and tenderness. When Jeremiah prophesies, and oh man, Jeremiah, what a, oh, I'm just touching this again. I just Jeremiah, the prophet who feels the emotions of God maybe more than anybody else, Jeremiah is a basket case by our standards because he's feeling God's emotions and he doesn't know how to deal with it. And when God's finally brought destruction on Jerusalem, there's Jeremiah walking around wearing sackcloth, singing songs of mourning over Jerusalem because he's so wrung out. Okay, you know when you have a bad day or you go through a traumatic experience and your emotions are intense? He is feeling the emotions of God. He's the living explanation of God's emotions towards humanity. He's walking around distraught, singing the book of Lamentations. Oh my gosh. And in Jeremiah 2, he says this, the Lord's speaking first person. And the Lord tells him to go cry in the middle of Jerusalem and say this, I remember you. I remember the kindness of your youth, Israel. The Hesed. I remember when you loyally loved me. I remember when you were kind and tender and affectionate toward me. I remember when your heart was turned towards me. I remember when we flowed back and forth in relationship. 
I remember when you went after me in the wilderness. He goes, I remember the love of your betrothal. I remember the kindness, the said of your youth. Jeremiah prophesies from there as a lover, as a God who is a husband who has been defrauded by a people who have run, run after other lovers. They've played the harlot. And he goes, other harlots, you have to pay them. He goes, but not you, Israel. You, you pay your lovers. And we see Jeremiah as this distraught, emotional wreck. Displaying the ethos of God. He's just this emotional wreck because God is distraught. Over, over the treachery and the betrayal of humanity. Showing that, that part of the Lord that's, that's even vulnerable to human affection. It's a, I mean, it's a stunning. He goes, I remember you when you were kind to me. When you loved me. I remember the kindness that has said. And then Hosea, he says this. He says, the Lord speaks first person. He goes, I will betroth you to me in loving kindness. And has said, I will betroth you to me in loyal love. Beloved, it was always about a God who was going to come into intimate union with humanity. When the Lord calls Israel out of Egypt and says, let them come out that they might worship me at Sinai, Jeremiah gives us, Commentary on in Jeremiah 31, and the Lord says, I was a husband to them at Sinai. That was a marriage. God comes down in glory on Mount Sinai. He tells the people to sanctify themselves. Why? Because the Lord is going to come down, and he invites 2.2 plus million people in to have a relationship with the Lord. He wants to make them all a kingdom of priests, that they would all have access, not just to the the signs and the wonders and the marvels of God, but to the ways of God's heart. And 2.2 million people back up, and they say, not for us, Moses, you go in. Moses becomes the prophet and priest when the whole kingdom was supposed to be priests. With access, not just to the signs and wonders, but to the emotions of the heart of God. He goes, I will betroth you again. And Hosea goes, I will betroth you to me in loving kindness, in hesed. It was always about a God who longed to have relationship with humanity. I want to mention something to you. 2.2 million people back up. Moses goes in. Israel breaks the covenant. They depart from God. God brings judgment like a lion that tears them. And then he sends Jesus. And Jesus is what? The bridegroom. To do what? To die as the sacrifice. And here he is. The bridegroom who is the sacrifice. The priest who is the offering. The priest, Jesus, comes before the throne of Almighty God in the true heavens, presents his own blood as the sacrifice. The priest is the offering. Why? To sanctify for himself a people that would be a holy people, a chosen generation, A peculiar people unto what? A second coming of the Lord Jesus to the earth. And that is going to culminate in what? A marriage. The kingdom of heaven. It's all about a king. He's arranged a marriage for his son. All about this term has said. And God says, he goes, I am abounding in loving kindness. I'm abounding in loyal love. I'm abounding in tenderness and affection. I'm abounding in strength and commitment. I'm abounding in my benevolent affections for you. And then in Hosea 6, he says, but your loyal love to me, it's like the morning dew. Momentary. Oh, oh my. So then we get verse six in context. He goes, I desire said, and not your sacrifices. He goes, it was never about some legalistic system of pushing the right buttons, doing the right sacrifices, doing all the right do's and don'ts so you'd be right with God. He goes, it was always about an affectionate, tender interchange of loyal love between you and I. I desire said and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God more than burnt offerings, that you would know me more than offer me a burnt dead animal. 
Fast forward to Jesus. Matthew 9. He's eating with tax collectors and sinners. And the religious main guys show up and they go, what are you doing, Jesus? Why are you in there? He goes, hey, go learn a verse. Hosea 6. Verse 6. I desire said and not sacrifice. And the way we translate it in the New Testament, it's written in Greek. That word is, is mercy, but said is more than mercy. It's kindness and loyal love. Jesus knew what Hosea 6 meant. He wasn't revising it or refining it. He was saying the same thing. He quotes Hosea 6 to me. He goes, go learn Hosea 6. Learn verse 6. I desire loyal love and not your sacrifices. Why am I in here with the sinners? Because I want relationship with people. Not lists of do's and don'ts and people mindlessly following the rules and their hearts are far from me. Because I'm about to burst your wineskin. Now we go to chapter 12. And I tell you, the conversation with Jesus, fighting the religious spirit, fighting with the religious leaders throughout his ministry, it's just stunning to me because he starts off with, I desire has said, and he ends up with, your place is left to you desolate. He's doing the Hosea. He goes, I'm a lion. I'm about to tear you. Oh, it's stunning, beloved. Tender affections of God towards humanity, his long suffering and his mercies that are new every morning. Even in the middle of Jeremiah's lament, as he is singing the destruction of God and the judgments of God over Jerusalem, that's when we get that verse. His mercies are new every morning. Oh my gosh. The God who is willing to fight for you, he's even willing to fight with you for you. He's even willing to fight with you for you. Oh, you and I don't comprehend the extent of his loyalty to us. Even if we're faithless, he is faithful. Why? He cannot deny himself. When he says I do, he means I do. When we say I do, we say maybe, okay, I'll try. I'm going to do my best. He goes, no. I say I do and I mean I do. He goes, and you say you do and I'll give you grace to continue to say you do and I will fight with you for you to be able to continue to say you do. My mercies are new every morning. Oh. Oh, I want to be possessed with the knowledge of God. I want to know this God who is burning passion. I want to respond to his loyal love, his kindness, with loyal love and kindness. Chapter 9 of Matthew, he says, Pharisees, go learn what this means. And then he says it again to them in chapter 12. Let's get in context. Verse 1. That time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and, and to eat. When the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. I had to go back and reread the laws of the Sabbath from the Old Testament just to figure out what was the bone that the the Pharisees had that they were picking. And here's what it boiled down to. There was no, there was nothing in the law that said you couldn't do what was normative for you to sustain your own life on the Sabbath. What there was in the law was you can't do work on the Sabbath and you can't sort of in an impetuous way rebel against it and decide this is what I'm gonna do. And we have the example of this one guy who was found collecting sticks on the Sabbath and he ends up getting put to death. And when you read the text, you you see this, he's found collecting sticks and then they, they arrest him. But the point is he's rebellious and he's snubbing his nose and he's doing his normal work that he's not supposed to be doing on the Sabbath that he would ordinarily be doing, and he's snubbing his nose at the Sabbath law and at relationship with God, and that guy gets put to death. From there, the Pharisees, from there, the religious elders, they end up writing in a whole list of laws that you're supposed to keep to honor God and honor the Sabbath, and it had to even do with how many steps you were allowed to take on the Sabbath. So the Pharisees show up, and they see 
The disciples are gathering grain on the Sabbath and Jesus has to come and undo all the knots in their chain because they've totally misapplied the law of the Sabbath and what it was even about. Because the Pharisees say, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat. Not for those who were with him, but only for the priests. I mean, David, he's on the run from Saul. He goes into Nob. He goes into the high priest, Ahimelech, and he goes in there, and he says, hey, listen, you got any food? He goes, well, all we got is the showbread. That's like somebody coming here, and they go, hey, you got any food? We go, we got a lot of communion crackers. Give them to me. And he's just like, really? Yeah, and the guy starts peeling the little instrument, eating the communion crackers. He's like, oh, okay, bro. You're hungry. David eats the showbread. Jesus references that. He goes, remember that? He goes, that was in order for him to sustain himself. That's Jesus' point. Verse five, or have you not read in the law on the Sabbath how the priests in the temple profess Sabbath and are blameless? What's he talking about? He's talking about on the Sabbath, the priests had to, had to prepare offerings. They had to slay animals. They had to cook those animals. They had a ton of servile work that they had to do on the Sabbath and they were guiltless. The point wasn't to prohibit normal work that you have to do to sustain yourself. It, it wasn't to, to box a guy in and make him burdened under the Sabbath. The point of the Sabbath was to give man rest and let him have a time to fellowship with God and replenish himself. And Jesus says, it, and Mark is the one who records it, that Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, God didn't create man and think, how can I enslave him? Yeah, I'll give him one day. He can't do anything. If he does, then I'm going to get him. Which is the way that the Pharisees had interpreted it. If you do anything on the Sabbath, we're going to nail you. So here you have Jesus' disciples. They're hungry. They don't have any food. It's lawful for them, in the, in the, uh, the, under the law, it was lawful for them to go through the, the uh, field of their neighbors. If they didn't take a sickle, they could just go through and pluck some heads of grain and eat just to sustain themselves. That was lawful. It was actually provided for in the law. That's what these guys do on the Sabbath. Pharisees, because they've written more laws in, they say they're doing what's not lawful. And Jesus gives this little teaching about Sabbath. The point of the Sabbath is you're supposed to rest and connect and love God and replenish and then do your normal work on the other six days. Verse six, he goes, now here's the thing. The priests, they're profaning the temple on the Sabbath. He goes, verse six, but I say to you, there's one way greater than the temple in front of you. He goes, I'm far greater than the temple. The priests profane the Sabbath in the temple as if, if that, like, it's like, you know, you don't lie in church. There they are in the temple profaning the Sabbath. He goes, That's, you know, that would be really bad, but they're blameless because they're supposed to do that. He goes, if these guys are profaning the Sabbath, he goes, I'm far greater than the temple. If this was a sin, this would be a really bad sin. You guys don't get it at all. Verse seven, but if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Man. Chapter 9, he says, go learn what this means. Go read Hosea 6. Your wineskins are going to burst because you don't understand where I'm even coming from. And here we have it in chapter 12. He goes, if you had learned it, you wouldn't be condemning the guiltless. The point is this. He goes, I'm the, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He goes, they're with me doing what I'm doing. I'm greater than my own laws. I'm greater than the temple. I'm God. And the point is to be with God doing what God is doing. If you had understood, I desire loyal love and not your sacrifices, then you would never have condemned the guiltless. And I think that's a powerful statement. I was sitting there dealing with this, looking at this, going, man, if Jesus showed up in our church today, and started doing stuff that we were like, hey, that's kind of weird, bro. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, would we be telling Jesus he's not doing Christianity right? I think we probably, I think Jesus, if Jesus showed up here, he'd be doing stuff and we'd be going like, whoa. Hey, we don't really do that. You know, don't offend anybody, whatever. He'd be like, yeah, no, I'm God. 
I'm Lord of this place. I'm way bigger than this place. He goes, you got to get it. Do what I'm doing. I desire loyal love. Connect with me. And don't get in your religious mind thinking you got your list of one, two, three, four, fives. Oh, beloved. How often have we religiously judged somebody not comprehending God's desire for relationship with them? And then how often on the other side have we excused our own sin in, in a, with a licentious mentality, not comprehending God's desire for relationship with us? See, there's two ditches, one on each side of the road. One is legalism, the other is licentiousness. In the middle of the road is loyal love, has said. In relationship, we stay in the middle with Jesus. We stay out of trying to work to get his approval, finding the five things to do, and now I'm a Christian because I do these five things. Or we stay out of the other ditch where we just excuse our sin, we excuse our dullness, we excuse our carnality without relationship. Both are ditches. In the middle is, I desire loyal love. I desire loyal love. And oh, we could get a picture of the bridegroom who's burning with passion and desire to be in loyal, loving, affectionate, and tender relationship with us. We would live day in and day out in relationship. We tend to legislate our Christianity because we lack revelation. We tend to insert religion because we lack relationship. Where we lack relationship and revelation, we we tend to ritualize our connection with God. I tell you, he wants to burst all that. He wants a people that will flow with him in loyal love day in and day out. And I look at this and I look at how he has to deal with the Pharisees in chapter 12 and then again in 15 and again in 16 and then in 21 and 23. And I go, oh my goodness, man, I see how so many of my own mentalities of serving God out of the do's and don'ts, out of the lists of what's acceptable and what's not, and not out of love and connection with the Holy Spirit has created a a mentality, a paradigm of religion in me and in us. And I'm just saying us, us believers, people who love Jesus. I mean, there's so many little religious corners that we don't know that are built in. This is not about keeping the do's and don'ts of a supposed New Testament Christianity. This is about them that are the sons of God or led by the Spirit of God. He doesn't cross his word. He gives us the culture of his kingdom in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. But his point is he wants a vibrant day in, day out, flowing in love and passionate relationship with people. And that's what Christianity is supposed to be. It's not a system of belief. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. It's a relationship with a man and his name is Jesus. And oh, that is a wineskin bursting truth. Because it's easier for us to do the list. It's easier for us to legislate our Christianity than to have a vibrant, alive relationship in love. Because you've got to know what this means. I desire has said. I desire loyal love. I desire to flow back and forth in love and relationship with you. I don't care about your sacrifices. I don't care about you bending over backwards and doing, you know, all sorts of religious rituals to try to get my attention because that's not what I'm into. I am into flowing in love with you. No, beloved, if we could understand the mercy and the desire of the bridegroom God who is that committed to us, loyal in love to us, it would, it would, it would uh, metamorphosize the way that we, we do our Christianity. Christianity is not about us showing up at a building on a weekend. It's not about us even keeping a quiet time. It's about us having a relationship with a man that's burning in love. And from that intimate relationship, his culture, it permeates our hearts. His desires permeate our being. His mentalities permeate our mind. His words permeate our soul. 
from there we live a life of an existence where the spirit and the word burning and boiling in us. We live an existence that's alive in love with God and free from religious restraint. I'm looking, I'm staring at the word and I'm saying, God, where have I, and even in my own soul, condemned the guiltless with myself and with others? Where have I condemned the guiltless? Where have I made rules that are not necessary to keep people in relationship with God? Where have I done it in my own self and where have I applied them to others? Paul described, he says, there's all sorts of rules and none of them, none of them are of any effect to keep the flesh in line. But it's the spirit who gives life. It's the spirit, living by the spirit is how you crucify the flesh. He's talking about living in loyal love. Am I making sense? Five people, praise God, I got you. Oh, I want to flow in love with the bridegroom God. He was calling the Jews in the New Testament. He was calling the people out of legalism and into love. He's calling them out of rules and into relationship. And that's how it's always supposed to have been. He desires has said. He desires has said. And we get worried. We go, what do you mean? He did, he's calling them out of rules. I mean, you got to have some rules. What about that? I mean, you got you to have some rules because, you know, people act crazy. Here's my rule. Go, to, go learn what this is. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Here's the rule. Fall in love. Fall in love. Fall in love and let loyal love, let loyal love, really let it burn in you and let it direct your life. Fill yourself with the word and, and commune with the spirit and let that direct your life. There's the rule. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That fulfills the whole law. When they ask Jesus for rules, he goes, there's two of them. Love God, love people. There it is. Blowing up wineskins. Blowing them up. He's the God that gets in the dirt with harlots, beloved. He goes into the tax collectors and eats and fellowships with them. He does all sorts of wild wonders. He walks on water. He spits in the dirt and puts it in people's eye. I mean, what in the world? He raises people from the dead, calls Lazarus out of the tomb, lets blind eyes open, cleanses lepers. He loves the most unlovely. Why? Why don't you keep the rules like everybody else, Jesus? He goes, because I desire loyal love. It's never supposed to be about rules. And all that we would be a, a people flowing in that with God. Amen. All right, let's just stand.